You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, as we arrive at the Gospel of Mark, we continue our series as we've been marching verse by verse through this amazing gospel. And we have studied that Mark is providing vistas of Jesus' ministry, that somewhat three-year ministry where Mark includes stories and teaching and miracle accounts all woven together to show how Jesus is the Son of God, how Jesus is the epicenter of redemptive history, how Jesus is the epicenter of all of Scripture. And he's been showing that to us through all of these vistas. He'll do so again in this section of Mark, which is probably a familiar passage to some of you. But in this passage, what Mark is going to be highlighting is the true path of discipleship. Paths are important, aren't they? During this time of the year, my wife and I reflect on how much we love the people of Kansas City, but not necessarily the weather. As we have cold, high temperatures and we have wind chills below freezing, we are reminded of one of our favorite places, and that is Phoenix, Arizona. We love Phoenix because of the sun. We love Phoenix because of the warmth. We love Phoenix because you get to take trails and to hike. And one of our favorite is a trail on the South Mountain. And we've hiked this many times because it's close to where my parents live in Tempe. And we're familiar with that. And there's sights on the path that we enjoy. There's, there's Fat Man's Pass. There's the natural arch. There's the remnants of a kitchen that as the, the engineers came through to actually carve out those paths, they had a kitchen that they built to be able to provide food for the workers. And there's the remnants of that. And we have memories of our kids going into that remnant and acting like they're making food for us. And a couple years ago, we took some friends of ours on this path and we were going to show them all the sites, but we took for granted our familiarity. We didn't pay attention to the posts that told us what path we were on, how far we had actually traveled, and unfortunately, it took a lot longer than what it should have, and we didn't get to show them all of the sites that we love. Following the right path is crucial in hiking. It can be the difference between injury and death or being able to enjoy the sights. But the same thing is true on the journey of life. If we do not follow the right path markers, if we are not on the right path, that could be the difference between our eternity in heaven or our eternity in hell. And so this passage, as we begin 2022, before the busyness ensues, before all of the distractions take place, is an opportunity for us as individuals and as a church to evaluate, are we on the right path of true discipleship? If you'll notice in your notes, the big idea of this passage is true discipleship is authenticated along the pathway of discipleship. Let me read our passage, and then we will see four path markers to help you and me discern if we are on the right path. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want for you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am being baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. An amazing passage that provides us four path markers to help us discern whether or not we are on the right path of true discipleship. Number one, there is one model. There is one model. Verse 32 provides context, and this is important, especially since we've been weeks away from the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, up to this point, Jesus has just interacted with a a young, wealthy man. And the young wealthy man asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus' response to him caused the man to walk away. But what astonished the disciples is the teaching Jesus gave. And that was that it is difficult, no, it is almost impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, for the Jews of Jesus' day, this was astonishing because in the ancient world, people thought that if you're wealthy, that meant you were having God's favor. 
And what Jesus was saying is, friends, look around you. Those who are wealthy, it is almost impossible for them to be in heaven. That's why it says that the disciples, as they were going to Jerusalem, were amazed. Usually the disciples and the people around Jesus were amazed at his teaching, and so that's part of it. But part of the reason why the disciples were amazed is he was going where? What does the text say? He was going up to Jerusalem. The phrase up to Jerusalem is usually reminding the readers that Jerusalem is geographically higher altitude than anywhere else in Israel. It also is reminding us that people were going up to Jerusalem for a reason, to worship at the temple in this particular case because it was the Passover season. They were amazed, though, at Jesus' posture and his positioning. Look at what it says at verse 32. It says, Jesus was walking ahead of them. See, the typical position of a rabbi was beside his disciples, teaching them along the way, but Jesus was walking ahead of them. What this is telling us is that Jesus is a man on a mission. You can write down Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was committed to get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible. Isaiah 50 says that the servant will set his face like a flint toward his mission. So the disciples are amazed because they know conflict is at Jerusalem. And that's probably why the rest of the group, verse 32, was afraid. They know that Jesus was at odds with the religious leaders. In fact, John 19 tells us that at this point, the religious leaders had put a bounty on Jesus' head. The the people knew that Jesus and the Roman Empire were at odds. Jesus kept talking about his kingdom and that he was a king. And they knew that Rome didn't look kindly upon that. And so the crowd that is following Jesus is afraid. And so this is the context that we find ourselves in as we arrive at verse 33. Jesus calls the disciples to himself. He says, come here, I've got some teaching for you. And he teaches them similarly to what he's already taught them. In fact, it says in verse 33, the Son of Man, a reference to his title that tied into Daniel 7, will be delivered into the chief priests and the scribes and to the Gentiles, and they will kill him. That had already been taught twice, chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 9, verse 31. So as a reader of the Gospel of Mark, we might be tempted to say, okay, skip ahead, skip ahead. Let's go down to verse 35. But Mark provides some details because Jesus provided some details that are extremely important for us. Look at what it says in verse 33. It will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will, look at these three terms, mock him, spit on him, and flog him. In the two previous prophecies of his death, these terms were not found. So, why did Jesus use these here, and why does Mark include them? Because I think it drew the disciples and the early readers and us to the Old Testament. Would you turn back to Isaiah chapter 50, please? Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike, there's flogging, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, that is mocking, 
And I hid not my face from disgrace and, what does it say? Spitting. Isn't that interesting? Now, whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or references concepts from the Old Testament, they are not throwing out the context. So we've got to understand the context of the Old Testament passage. Now, the New Testament provides a flashlight or a higher level of light, as it were, to those Old Testament passages, but we still must evaluate the context of the Old Testament text. So the context of Isaiah 50 is within the section that went from 49 to 53. Back in chapter 49... In verse 3, Isaiah says that the Lord will raise up a servant. Why is that important? Well, when you look at the Old Testament, the greatest servant of the Old Testament the Jews would have considered is the servant Moses. And if you're going to look at Moses' life as a Jew of Jesus' day, and you are going to ask what is he most known for, it was not the Ten Commandments. Moses was most known for leading the Jews out of Egypt, the Exodus. And so as Isaiah begins talking about a servant that is going to be raised up, he's using those parallels to say, Israel needs to be exodused. That's not a word. It's what I just used. They need to be led out of bondage, but it's not bondage to a nation. It's bondage to their own rebellion. The servant is to lead them out of the bondage to their own rebellion. But as you look at chapter 49 and 50, you see that Israel does not repent. They do not follow the servant. In fact, they double down and become so rebellious that chapter 50 and verse 1 says, God divorces his people. Isn't that interesting? And so there must be a servant that can lead his people out of their bondage to restore the relationship. And the way that occurs, chapter 50 says, is that the servant must have obedience to the word. Israel has already demonstrated they will not obey God's word. And so the servant will have to do that. That's what chapter 50, verse 6 is talking about. That is the eye of chapter 50, In verse 6, it is the servant who obeys perfectly and leads his people out of their rebellion into freedom in Christ. Now, now wouldn't we expect that this victorious warrior, this servant who obeyed the word, who leads his people out of bondage, would be celebrated? Don't we expect that? Don't we expect that there would be a parade with confetti? Don't we expect that he would be exalted, that he would be worshipped? And yet verse 6 says, he will be mocked, he will be flogged, and he will be spat upon. Friends, what this does is show us that there is one model when it comes to discipleship. You know, the path of discipleship is explained by Jesus in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, It says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The pathway of true discipleship is not a wide road filled with confetti celebrating us. It is a road of persecution 
of mocking, of flogging, of suffering. You know, I love hiking, especially when it's not very high altitudes. And speaking of high altitudes, a hike that is intriguing to me is Everest. Partly intriguing because I'll never do it. Partly intriguing because of the stories and the documentaries and the movies. And so let's just all role play for a moment. What if I said in 2022, instead of going to Israel, which we're not, by the way, but instead of going to Israel, we would go to Mount Everest. Who would we want to follow? Here's example number one. So he's cute. He's on the trail. He's prepared. He's got his little snack cup. And in fact, the article that I pulled this from says that this equipment is the best equipment money can buy for toddlers hiking. But I got to tell you, I'm not going to follow him to the summit of Everest. Now, the next picture, this is a guy who's on his ninth summit. He's still smiling. He still has all of his fingers. He has the right equipment. That is a guy that we want to follow. And when we come to the pathway of discipleship, there are plenty of people who will tell you, follow me, the way is easy. Follow me, I know the way. But friends, on the path of true discipleship, there is but one model. And he tells the disciples, the path will not be easy. That's what he says in these verses. He says, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism? And these are symbolisms to explain the kind of suffering that Jesus was going to experience. And and let me just give you a quick biblical interpretation education. What Jesus is not saying here is that the disciples are going to experience the same details that Jesus experienced. He's not going to say they're both going to be crucified. He's not even saying they'll both be martyred. In fact, by scripture, we only see that James was martyred. But what he's saying is the path of discipleship is a pathway of suffering. It is a narrow road. It is filled with suffering because of our own sin. It is filled with suffering because of the wickedness of others. But all of it is Romans 8, 28 and 29, being used to conform us to the image of Christ and bring God glory. Jesus went before us. Jesus is our guide. And there's been a lot of candidates, haven't there? There was Adam, there was Seth, there was Noah, there was Abraham, there was Jacob, there was Isaac, there was Moses, there was David, there was Peter, James, John, the Apostle Paul, but the only true model, the one model, is Jesus. And to the degree that those people reflect the model Jesus, then we should follow them. And the same is true with every other disciple of Jesus Christ. The first path marker on the path of true discipleship is that there is one model. Number two, there is often misstep. There's often misstep. What Mark has been doing, isn't this fascinating? Remember, most likely Peter was giving Mark the details that Mark is writing down. And so I don't know about you, but if I'm writing the details of my life, I'm going to cover the positive things. But over the last few chapters, Mark has really been showing how disappointing the disciples are. 
Jesus has rebuked them in chapter 8. He is constantly telling them, do you not understand what is wrong with you? The disciples are constantly exposed for missteps, and that's what happens here. Verse 35, it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, and they make a genie request, don't they? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't bite. He says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they make a request. For those of us who have studied this, we know the rest of the story. But on the surface, it doesn't necessarily seem evil, does it? Here's what we want you to do, Jesus. When you get in your glory. Now, the phrase in your glory is also translated in Matthew 20 as in your kingdom. But I don't think the disciples are talking about heaven. I think they're talking about Jerusalem. Remember, even when you get to Acts 1-6, the disciples are still focused on an earthly kingdom. So I think what James and John are saying is, we know that when you get to Jerusalem, there's going to be conflict. In fact, you have just told us that when you get to Jerusalem, there's going to be killing and resurrection. So we know it's going to be bad, but at some point, you're going to have a throne in Jerusalem. We want to be a part of that. So on the surface, it's not necessarily evil. Look at the request specifically. They say, we want to be on your right hand and your left. The right hand and the left were places of honor. Right was the best. Left was the second best. And and at this point, we're looking at this and we're saying, ah, okay, maybe something's going on here. The true telltale is where the disciples respond. Verse 41, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The word indignant is the definition we'll put up on the screen. The word indignant means to be angry over something you judge to be wrong. Now that in and of itself is not bad. There are things that we should judge in our lives and actually be angry about them, but the key is what is the standard? You know, I'm angry at Kirk Cousins. Those of you who don't know who he is, he's the quarterback for the Vikings, hopefully for the last year. See, I am a huge Vikings fan. I love the Chiefs, and the only time I'll root against the Chiefs is in the impossible scenario where the Chiefs and the Vikings are in the Super Bowl. But I, I love purple. And I remember back in 2018 when Kirk Cousins was given a contract that was the largest contract of any other quarterback. And I started, I started counting the Lombardi trophies. I started thinking, okay, over the next five years, how many Super Bowls are we going to win? Because if this guy is getting paid the most of any other quarterback, he must be the best. And he's an NFL quarterback. But over the last four years, let me just tell you what Kirk Cousins has done. Batted ball after batted ball. Interception after interception, third down, lack of conversions after lack of conversions, and I have judged that and said, this is wrong, and I am angry. I am indignant against Kirk Cousins, the quarterback. Now, I think he's a Christian. I think he's a great guy, but he hasn't delivered what I expected him to deliver because of his money and his position. Now, as I've talked to people who actually know football, I don't pretend to know football, As I've talked to people who know football, they started telling me, listen, Jeff, it's not all on Kirk Cousins. 
Maybe receivers aren't running the right routes. Maybe the offensive line is not protecting him. Maybe another person I'm indignant against, Mike Zimmer, the head coach, doesn't have a good philosophy. And before you know it, I realize that what I'm judging Kirk Cousins against is the wrong standard. Because after all, guess what? He's human. And see, that analysis is, I think, what Peter is trying to give Mark so that we can understand. Is that true? Disciples of Christ are going to make missteps because we're human. Isn't that encouraging? In fact, let me give you two reasons our missteps are allowed in our lives. Number one, it's supposed to give us hope. It's supposed to give us hope. Can you imagine if God said, once you're saved, anything short of perfection kicks you off the team? But we treat ourselves like that sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we treat other believers like that, whether it be in the church, whether it be in our families. Our missteps are intended to produce hope in our lives that we are not perfect. We are following after the perfect one, which leads me to the second purpose of our missteps, and that is the reminder of our desperation. Isn't that true? When I mess up, I don't blow myself out of the water. I'm reminded that that's why I need the gospel in my life. I desperately need Christ. I desperately need the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. I love the book, The Gospel Primer. In fact, a phrase that occurs over and over in that little book is preach the gospel to yourself daily. See, the disciples constantly are making missteps and that is intended to encourage us. The key though, beloved, is you're on the pathway is to evaluate how do you handle the missteps? Do the missteps move you to hope and to desperation in Christ or do they lead you to depression and despair and derailing? Just remember, friends, on the true pathway of discipleship, there are often missteps. Number three, there is one measure. There is one measure. Verse 42, after the disciples are indignant, which by the way, I think it's so interesting. I didn't come up with this. One of the commentators revealed this to me. How many seats did James and John ask for? Two. How many were in the inner circle of Jesus? Three. So I bet Peter led the indignation. Wait, wait, what? And the rest of the disciples followed in tow. And Jesus exposes that the motives were not correct of James and John. It says in verse 42, Jesus called them to him. So he calls the disciples to him as an opportunity to teach. And they know, here we go. This is going to be a lesson. And Jesus says, you know. What he does here is he draws from their experience. And he says, listen, look around you at the Gentile leaders. Look around you at the leaders of the world system. Look at the Roman soldiers. Look at the, the Roman governors. Look at the Caesar of Rome. And he says, take them as an example. And it says, these leaders lord it over their people that they are authority over. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. This is a little confusing. And it's been misunderstood by Christians. 
First of all, we have to evaluate, is Jesus saying here, no one should ever have authority and we all should be equal, we just serve each other equally? Well, if that's the case, then how is anybody going to function? But then also, too, as Christians, then, are we just supposed to serve everyone equally? Are we just supposed to always serve, always be slaves? That's hard. And what's also interesting is the vocabulary. It says here that the Gentile leaders lorded over people, but this is actually the command that God gives to his humans. In Genesis 1.28, he says, lorded over creation in a positive sense. But then in 1 Peter 5, 3, Peter says, elders are not to lord it over people. So how do we know? You know, all of my life I've been a leader. I love leading. I was usually captain on my baseball teams. Usually in class when nobody else wanted to lead a study group, I would lead. I'm a leader in my home. I'm a leader in this church. I I love leading. And listen, Every one of you are leaders. By the way, can I just establish something here as the beginning of hopefully a cultural shift? I think sometimes we view our roles of service in the church simply as servant roles. And we are to have an attitude of servanthood. But let's remember our service is leadership. A leader is put in a role to help people move from where they are to where they need to be. That's leadership. And every interaction that you have with another individual is an opportunity and a privilege for you to lead. I'll explain that here in just a moment. So how do we know whether or not we are lording it over? And I have to tell you, every role that I've had as a leader has been a tension between am I leading properly or negatively? Am I leading in a way that honors Christ or am I leading like the world? And that is a tension that I still struggle with as a pastor. And I think what Jesus does though here is he actually gives us three M's to help us have a framework for Christ-centered leadership. This has been gold for me. In fact, if there's one takeaway that I've had from this passage, it's this one. I would encourage you to write these three M's down. Three M's that will provide a framework to help you lead in a Christ-honoring way and not in the way the world does. First of all, what is your motive in leading? What is your motive in leading? The motive of a Christ-centered leader is the glory of God. That's it. That is the motive. And we see that reflected in verse 45. Look at this. Even the Son of Man, that title that points us back to Daniel 7, came not to be served, but to serve. But listen, this is his service. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't heal everybody all the time? You can write down John chapter 5. By the pool of Bethsaida, John says there was a multitude of lame people, multitude of sick, but how many did he heal? He healed one. Jesus' service always had intentionality. And the intentionality was accomplishing the Father's will and bringing him glory. And we see that by the last phrase of verse 5. His service had as its motive to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that phrase is awesome. To give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom means the price that is required to accomplish freedom. Oh, I hope you love this. 
We are slaves to our own sin. We are slaves to our sin nature. There is a price that is required for our freedom. And it says that Jesus paid that price. But here's what I love about this. There's a passage in 1 Timothy 2.6. It says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all. Does anybody see an apparent contradiction? Ransom for many, ransom for all. The two different passages actually have different emphasis. I love this. In 1 Timothy 2.6, it talks about the actual payment for the freedom. Whereas this passage in Mark emphasizes the freedom. So here's what it's saying is that the, the price is sufficient. It can actually be enough for every human who accesses it. And that passage in 1 Timothy 2 is talking about kings and emperors. There is nobody outside of the reach of the payment for sin. But the only ones who will actually experience the freedom and the benefit are the elect, the ones who access it. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And this was God's plan from the beginning before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. What drove Jesus is the motivation of bringing the Father glory in everything that he did. What is your motive? The right motive is the glory of God. Number two, what is your mission? What is the end game of your leadership activity? Jesus uses two words throughout his response. He says, serve and slave. Serve and slave. When I serve someone, I'm attempting to make their life better. A slave is intended to be in a role that helps the master accomplish something, helps the master be better. And listen, beloved, the mission is discipleship. That's it. Even in your working here at Ascend, if you're in the cafe, if you're a greeter, if you're handing out the bulletins, if you're on the worship team, if you're in the kids' ministry, the, the, the mission is discipleship. If you work at Garmin, if you work at a restaurant, if you're a landscaper, the mission is discipleship. Every interaction that you have with someone else is an opportunity to move them from where they are to where they need to be in Christ. The mission is discipleship. Sometimes you have to say hard things. Sometimes you have to call people to account. Sometimes you have to call out sin, but all of that has as its mission bringing them to be more like Christ. Which brings me to the third M, and that is the mindset. The mindset. The mindset, beloved, is humility. It's humility, and the two words are there once again to, to serve and to be a slave. A servant understands where they stand in light of others. They are second. They are last. The fact is, is that Jesus is highlighting the fact that would be on display of Philippians 2, 1 through 10. And beloved, I submit to you, this is not the end-all be-all. This is not going to guarantee that you won't sometimes lead in a negative lording way. But if we take these three M's and this is the framework through which we lead, we will more than, off, more than likely and more than not lead in a way that reflects 
true biblical discipleship? What's your motive, the glory of God? What's your mission, discipleship? What's your mindset, humility? And the perfect measure of this is whom? It's Christ. The fourth mile marker on the path of true discipleship in this passage is there is one means. There's one means. What an amazing story. Verse 48, or 46, I can't read, need my readers. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus. Interesting, this is one of those rare times when the name of the person healed is actually provided. And the reason for that is most likely that Bartimaeus was known to the original audience and recipients of this gospel. It's most likely that Bartimaeus was a, a leader in that church. And so it says that Bartimaeus, a, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. See, they would put themselves in this position because as pilgrims were headed to Jericho and then to Jerusalem, there would be a lot of people going by, and they're just hoping that people had compassion. But, but listen, Bartimaeus hears that there's an individual among the crowd known as Jesus, literally, the Nazarene. Isn't that cool? If you were here on the 26th, we marched through Matthew chapter 2. And at the very end of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew says this was to fulfill what was written in the prophets, that Jesus would be a Nazarene. And remember why? Because how in the world could the king, the son of David, come from such a rural and unassuming town like Nazareth? And I think this is a clue that Bartimaeus knew that this was more than just about his physical sight. So he hears that Jesus the Nazarene is in the crowd. And he calls out, have mercy on me. Was that kind of annoying the way that I just did that? I mean, if you're listening to a teacher and somebody's just like, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, and, and the verb shows a repetition, you would be tempted to do what the crowd did, and that is, shh, I'm trying to listen. So he does it all the more. Have mercy on me! And it gets Jesus' attention. It says in verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So the crowd now brings the blind man and they say, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And look at the question that Jesus asks him. What do you want me to do for you? The same thing that he asked James and John. And Bartimaeus responds how we would respond. Give me sight, I want to receive my sight. Ken Hughes tells the story of a woman named Anna May Penica. At 62, she had been blind her entire life. But in 1981, medicine had advanced to the place where a doctor could perform surgery on her and granted her sight. We may all sit here and say, wow, isn't that great? No, I mean, really, Pastor, it's, that's a great story. I'm sure she loved it. That's great. Are you almost done? See, that's often how we view this spiritual reality of sight, isn't it? See, the means are on display with Bartimaeus, and he realizes that it's more than physical sight. And it begins with truly, truly understanding the identity of Jesus. 
You want to have the means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? You want to make sure you're on the pathway of true discipleship? It begins by recognizing the true identity of Jesus. Look at what he says. Verse 47, Jesus, son of David. One of the rare times that this title is used in the Gospel of Mark. But when you start thinking about the Old Testament implications, you can write down 2 Samuel 7, 14. The Lord promised David in the covenant with him that there will be a son of yours that will sit on the throne forever. Isaiah 11, 1, there will be a root that comes out of the stump of Jesse. And listen, what's also awesome about Isaiah 11 is that verse 4 says that this root that comes out of the stump of Jesse, the branch that comes out of the stump of Jesse will actually help the poor. Later on in Isaiah, it says that he will open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. And Bartimaeus understands this is more than just a miracle worker. This is Messiah. And he realizes that. He calls him rabbi. Literally, the Aramaic is Rabboni, which is a distinguished expert teacher of the scriptures. So he understands the true identity of Jesus. And beloved, that is the beginning of the pathway to discipleship. But the second step is a true understanding of your own identity. And what he's doing here is he's saying, have mercy on me. I, I cannot get sight myself. I am dependent on a source outside of myself. And the source is Christ. You must understand your own identity. But then the third step is get to him. And look at how he gets to him. Verse 50, throwing off his cloak. I, I read this phrase and I'm like, what, why did he do that? Well, most likely because it was tattered. Most likely because it was in strips. And so he moves from a sitting position to get to Jesus. And so that there were no hindrances, he removes his outer cloak. I love that. And then it says he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And what Jesus recognizes in all of this is one thing and one thing only. Look at what it says in verse 52. Your faith has made you well, beloved. Listen, that's the means of discipleship. The means of discipleship is faith. It's a biblical faith. It's a gospel faith. It's not a religious faith. It is the faith that is demonstrated here. And what I love about this, because this is the ongoing nature of this faith. Verse 52, Jesus said, go your way. Isn't that interesting? But he doesn't. It says he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And if you're a grammar nerd like me, this is brilliant. The, the, the verb followed talks about starting something that will continue for a long, long time. So friends, the means of true discipleship, the pathway of true discipleship is this ongoing following of Jesus, his true identity, understanding our true identity, and continuing in a worshipful obedience, pursuing him for the rest of our lives and pointing others to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is the path of true discipleship. And I know there's many of you in this room or watching online that claim to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I'll talk to another group and then I'll get back to you. But there might be some here who would say, listen, I, I don't even know what this all means. 
Or others of you who might say, well, I don't think that I have a relationship with the God of the universe. Bartimaeus has showed you the path. He's showed you the steps. Do you believe what the Bible says about God and Jesus' identity? That he is holy, that he is perfect, that it is his standards by which every human being will be judged, and his standard is perfection and holiness. Do you own your own identity? Spiritually speaking, you are blind. You are deaf. And left to yourself, you will never be received in relationship by the God of the universe. You desperately need someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Are you at a place this morning where you will spring up spiritually? You will remove the hindrances and you will come to Jesus committing yourself to a lifetime of following him. See, if you will do that, then you will enter the pathway of true discipleship. Friend, if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, where where are you on the journey? Are you following the one model? Is he who you are reflecting? When you have missteps, are you recognizing that they are intended to remind you of the hope and the desperate need that you have for Christ? Are you following after the true measure who had the right motive, the right mission, the right mindset? And then are you using the means of true discipleship and ongoing faith and desperate dependence in Christ.